It's a great privilege um, to come before you all and share the word of God. And every time you are invited to break the word of God, I think it's a great honor and privilege. And so we are very grateful for that. And we want to, on behalf of the Indian, Asbury Indian Fellowship, uh, we want to thank the chapel team and the chaplain, uh, Raman Jessica, and for all of you for giving us this opportunity to be able to uh, present before you and to invite you to participate in some of the cultural ways in which we express our worship to God. And I'm reminded of a story of a seminary student who was assigned to preach in the chapel during his final semester as a requirement for his graduation. After the sermon, his professor, who was assigned to give the feedback and the grade uh, on behalf of the faculty, met with him, appreciated his sermon, and informed him that he actually passed the requirement. But then before he ended the conversation, he told him, I just want to give you one advice. If you're going to preach a fiery sermon like this, remember, you will never be invited back to preach again. <laughs> I'm grateful that Asbury does not have that requirement. <laughs> you know, to come and speak in front of your professors and lecturers is not an easy thing. But thank God that when you preach the word of God, it is, we are listening to God's word being broken for us. We are listening to God and not looking at man's word. The worship service that we have tried to put together has been designed to help us participate uh, experientially within the diversity of various Indian languages, music, and to some extent, some, uh, some of the cultural expressions. Except, you know, there are a few exceptions to what we did today. And um, I just want to present a disclaimer before I proceed further. If you're going to expect a sermon like how we preach in India, probably I don't think we have enough time. We're already 11.30. <laughs> it's at least 45 minutes to an hour will be a good sermon. And, um, and we have been kind of contextualized to the Asbury culture. And uh, we have learned uh, some of the Asbury way of doing things. And, and, you, and you could see that uh, as we try to mix up what we, we are formed with, as well as we, where we come from. So let's get straight. Uh, I want to focus on the text that um, we have, uh, we just heard narrated. And before that, let's bow our heads in prayer as we take a moment to pause and ask, Lord, speak to me. We have come not to hear man's word, but to hear your word. Speak to us as we listen. Meet us at the innermost spiritual needs that we have. You're a faithful God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Who is Jesus? Jesus the prophet? Jesus the healer? Jesus the miracle worker? Jesus the good teacher? Or Jesus the Messiah? And to that list, our very own Dr. Phil Meadows adds Jesus the exorcist. 
The first time when I heard him say that, I was a little taken aback. But I think it's interesting to see Dr. Craig Keener, in one of his commentary on this chapter, chapter John chapter 4, writes, Jesus of the Gospels is one who is concerned about people, not customs. In other words, to put it rather bluntly, Jesus was probably the first Protestant. You know, or to put it more nicely, Jesus was, was a reformer. Um, so we're all aware that the Gospel of John is very unique, a book of signs filled with imagery, metaphors, and intimate conversations. But just focusing on John chapter 4, by now you would have knew, known that Indian preachers and Indian biblical scholars love the book of uh, Gospel of John. And they always write, most of the commentaries, a lot of Indians are writing. And uh, why they do that is because of the imageries, the metaphors, and intimate conversations that is presented in the Gospel of John. There are several themes that emerge in this chapter. The Jews versus Samaritans, man versus woman, water from the well or the living water, Mount Gerizim or Jerusalem, prophet or messiah, Jesus' humanity and divinity, physical thirst or the spiritual thirst, physical hunger or the Father's will, and so on. I think the chapter begins with a hint that Jesus was, was going to Galilee, but through Samaria. It's very interesting. The first verse kind of gives us a hint saying that it was something not the normal. He was compelled to go through Samaria. You know, there is a hint that saying that this is something that God was moving him, the Father was moving him to do it. There is that instance. So it is not an accident or coincidence that Jesus decided to pass through this uh, town of Samaria. And, and, and I think it was a compulsion by the Father's will. So there is a front stage narrative, a backstage narrative, that can be seen in the conversations that, um, that Jesus was having with the Samaritan woman, along with the helpful editor's comments. But as we focus on this conversation, I found it rather strange to be, to be using the term the Samaritan woman. I would, I would rather have her named as Fortini. And if you wonder where did that name come from, it's the baptismal name given to her according to the tradition of the Eastern Orthodox Church, where she's acknowledged as one of the greatest evangelists, almost equal in status to apostles and a martyr saint. So Fortini simply means the light or the enlightened one. Now, I think it's comfortable to address her as Fortini by her name, even though it seems to be a legend. As we look deeply into the conversation, two things come up. One is the place, and the second is the time. The location of the conversation is very important. It is at the Jacob's Well, John tells us. And Jacob's Well, probably this is the only place where um, Jacob's well is kind of mentioned, but the well is mentioned at least thrice in the scripture in the Old Testament. The well where Abraham's servants met Rebekah, um, Jacob meets Rachel, and Moses meets his future wife Zipporah. You know, so if you are found in a conversation with a woman near a well, there are other implications how we understand, you know. So I'm sure in Samaria, in Samaria, in Samaria, they would have thought 
what is happening here. Uh, uh, and, and, and that's what we get the feeling, that there is something strange that was going on. It was not just to draw water, but a place where marriage proposals are initiated, and a place where conversations among women, um, women happens. I, I'm, I'm trying to assume that not many of us here sitting here would have even actually seen a well. And um, so I'm trying to contextualize and say maybe it's like the water station, water filling station, or the coffee brewing station, as in the TV serial office, where the gossips, a lot of gossips takes place. That's what people who, who have seen those serials tell me. And, um, but I think in our institution, it's probably the, the coffee shop, the library, the gym, the cafeteria, the bars and pubs where conversations and table talks takes place. Whenever Jesus stopped and had a conversation, the interactions with people, that place became holy ground. In the gospel narratives, it was the hillside, the lakeside, the shore, the boat, the highways, the streets, and of course, several homes where he received hospitality. There were actually more healing miracles and teaching that happened outside the synagogue and the temple than inside. I'm reminded again of another story when George Whitefield, who took the lead, dragged his senior, much senior, cautious Wesley, who was very reluctant. In the spring of 1739, Whitefield took the momentous step of preaching outdoors to the grimy coal miners around Bristol and then to the street poor of London. What a great revival that broke out. Wesley was kind of shocked and surprised. He was very reluctant. He said, no, I can't get out of the pulpit. And finally he did. He was dragged and a great revival took place. Wesley adopted Whitefield's spirit of freedom to preach outdoors because it was the people that mattered, not the place. Martin Luther said, the word of God for the people of God. And he broke the chains that kept the Latin Bible tied to the lectern. Translating the Bible into German, giving it to the masses, putting the scripture into hymns, into poetic hymns, using the folk tunes sung in the pubs so that the masses can sing. It was nothing uh, you know, blasphemous that he did. He wanted people to have the word of God. It was people that mattered. The Jesus of the Gospels is one who is concerned with people, not with places. The timing, the timing of the conversation. You know, it was noon, writes the Gospel writer. It was unusual for women to come in the middle of the day to draw water. And so there are several assumptions scholars have made and um, ascribing negative reputation to the women, to Fortini, especially with the reference to the number of husbands she had. I think we're all familiar now with the serial marriages that several people have, and I don't see what was particularly wrong, and the commentators kind of give us an impression. Probably not so, there was not something that was wrong with the women. She was multi divorced multiple times, or her husbands died one after the other, or there could have been so many reasons why uh, it happened. So Jesus actually does not condemn Fortini as a sinner he kind of dives into meeting her deepest spiritual needs, irrespective of what was the background and the shame culture that she had come from. Jesus was actually waiting for her, even though 
she decided to come at noon to avoid the other women. She was embarrassed. But was she the only one who was embarrassed? Jesus also was probably very embarrassed. It was not easy for a male Jew to ask a Samaritan woman for a, for a, for a cup of water. In Jewish customs, a man should not be seen talking to a woman in public. And some of the rabbis says, even with your own wife, you're not supposed to be seen talking to her in public. So you'll rarely see Indian married couple holding hands and walking. The man will be walking in front, and the wife will be trying to match his pace behind him. You know, it was kind of not, not expected for you to do that. Even before Fortini realized that Jesus was the true Messiah, Jesus offered her the gift of God, freely the gift of the living water that will quench her thirst even before she can ask. The Jesus of the Gospels is one who is concerned with people, not with the timing of when he, ha he happens to talk. The climax of the conversation between Jesus and Fortini is Jesus' response to her question, where do we offer true worship? Is it Mount Gerizim or Jerusalem? I'm not sure whether it was a question to divert Jesus' attention to her personal life or to, uh, so that uh, we could talk about larger religious debates. You know, sometimes it happens. But in that short space of time, Jesus had already broken all the customs, rituals, and traditions in his conversation. He broke the racial barriers, and finally, Jesus kills the holy cow by saying the hour is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. The Jerusalem temple was actually very sacred to the Jews. It was the most magnificent temple built by Solomon, it, but it was destroyed. It was in ruins. And King Herod had tried to rebuild it, soon to be again destroyed. And I often wonder, why would God allow that destruction? Jesus even said that not even one stone will be upon the other, he prophesied during his time. How can God desire that a place that he wanted people to come and worship will be, uh, will be destroyed by the enemies? You know, the pandemic deprived almost all of us uh, from going to a building where we can worship together. And I believe that God was trying to tell us that the cathedrals and the temples, churches, synagogues are all buildings that one day may become ruins. God's presence was now in our homes where we worship together as families and friends. It was in the upper room that the Holy Spirit came upon the disciples and the, uh, who were gathered there on the day of Pentecost. It was the house of a Gentile centurion, Cornelius, that Peter witnessed the pouring of the Holy Spirit on all who gathered there. Of course, the Zoom and, uh, and the Facebook technology created virtual churches and cathedrals, so my hope of you know, seeing people worshipping in homes was all lost in, into virtual space. It's not the place, but the presence of God that matters for true worshippers. True worshippers are identified by, not by where they worship, but whom and how they worship in spirit and truth. True worship is empowered by the spirit of truth. Jesus, Jesus is the truth and the true temple. Jesus of the Gospels is one 
who was concerned about people, not about places of worship. You know, the first part of Jesus' answer answered the question, the place, but the second part answered how to worship. Jesus said true worshipers will worship the Father empowered by the spirit of truth. Now, Jesus has earlier offered the living water as a gift for Fortini. And this offer of the living water was to spring forth from within her as a fresh water from the springs. And as we all know, it's the imagery of the Holy Spirit springing forth from within us. It is the Holy Spirit that helps us from within to worship God in the spirit and in truth. The psalmist wrote, as the deer pants for the water, so my soul thirsts for you. And that thirst was probably answered when we had this greatest revival in the last century, uh, when the Pentecostals and Charismatics kind of broke into the scene across the globe, bringing the focus of worshiping in the spirit. A new awareness of spirit-led worshipers who have created thousands of new songs and new music delighting the Father who is looking for true worshipers. Paul, writing to Corinthians, instructs them that we need order in worship, but he also says we need freedom to exercise the gifts of the Spirit so that the body of Christ can be built up. Now, as I was reading the book of Revelation, I'm always, when we come to chapter 7, verse 9, I'm drawn to that vision of worship that John saw a great multitude that no one can count from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, worshiping God. Is it possible they were all singing in unison the same song? I'm not sure. Maybe God created us with diverse cultures, languages, and ethnicity. And I'm sure God will be bored to death if he was going to listen to the same song <laughs> and the same music, the same rhythm. Maybe like the day of Pentecost, as the disciples were speaking in tongues, people heard in their own languages. You can, you can speak in multiple uh, uh, tongues and use multiple music, but it can still all sound in unison. The psalmist writes, I will write a new song. I will sing a new song. And that is echoed in the Revelation, singing a new song. We want to exercise the spirit of freedom and truth because the Father is looking for true worshipers. Bishop Leslie Newbegin says, the fact that an activity is religious is pious in the sense of the great traditions of human religion by no means guarantees that it is concerned with reality. Religious practice can often be the place where we escape from reality. Our hypocrisy and our sheer selfishness are sometimes are at their maximum. Now, Jesus often chided the Pharisees for the hypocrisy that they displayed in ritualizing almost everything, the Jewish life and the Jewish worship. And so Jesus broke the Sabbath uh, rules, the ritual of washing hands and so on. On the night Jesus was betrayed, it was a traditional Jewish Passover meal. Jesus was the host, but when Jesus took the towel and the basin as a slave to wash the feet of his beloved disciples, including the betrayer, he broke all cultural norms. He turned the world of the disciples upside down. And then right in the middle of the Passover meal, Jesus takes the bread 
on the wine and says, this is my body broken and this is my blood shed for you. He said a new covenant was being made. He transformed that Passover meal into a meal where we remember his death on the cross. John beautifully puts in his narration in John chapter 13. He says, Jesus did this to show his disciples the full extent of his love for them. Jesus loved his disciples. Jesus loved the people. The spirit is the gift of the living water. Jesus was giving to Fortini and the Samaritan people to know the truth of who the Messiah was and to worship him. It was fresh water every day from the springs. We are often engrossed in our old ways of worshiping, stifling the freedom of the spirit. The spirit of truth frees us from all bondages, cultural and traditions. He frees us from our inhibitions and barriers. The spirit of the Lord brings deliverance into our lives so that we are able to worship God with freedom. The Jesus of the Gospels is one who was concerned about people, not customs, traditions, rituals, or places. Are you a true worshiper the Father is seeking? As we transition into celebrating the Lord's table, let's bow our heads and allow the Holy Spirit to minister to us, to remind us of what he is talking. Father, our prayer is that you will make us a true worshiper that you are seeking, that we'll worship you in spirit and in truth. As we continue to worship you, we pray that you will continue to lead us to experience your presence in a fresh way, as you promised. In Jesus' name we pray.